Good morning, everyone. We're going to be looking today at a message I call to this generation, to this generation. I'd like you all to stand at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word from Psalm 71. Psalm 71. Let me quickly say, it's so good to see you all in the house of the Lord this morning, and it's good to be here. I'm excited about the message that we have today, and also, in some ways, the message uh, that we have tonight will be a continuation, in some ways, of what I'm saying today. You'll see more about that in a moment. To this generation, Psalm 71, 17. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also, when I'm old and gray-headed, oh God, do not forsake me. Until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to everyone who is to come. May God bless the reading of his word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. To this generation. Uh, The development of this message today will call upon us to consider the story of two kings. And their response to the next generation. Neither one of them will be unfamiliar to you. We'll jump right into it today. The first one, of course, is King David. King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, was the author of Psalm 71. It begins with a familiar refrain in the Psalms. The appeal for God's help and God's strength and God's deliverance. David knew, as perhaps few men have ever known, how much he needed the help of God and what a powerful force he could be when God was with him. David, in his youth, was formidable. He was surrounded by valiant men, his mighty men, as they were called again and again in Scripture. They were all great and fierce fighters. They were led by his second-in-command, the ruthless Joab. Time after time, David, Joab, and his mighty men would lead Israel into battle against impossible odds and emerge victorious. David quickly developed a reputation, and rightfully so, as a mighty man of war, not to be trifled with. David, as a young man, was formidable. When David's own son Absalom led a treasonous revolt to seize the throne, the story of his defeat put prominently on display the fact that David was God's anointed king. And those who rose up against him would fail and fail and fail again. He was a mighty warrior. Now in Psalm 71, David is a much older man. Now even an old lion is still a lion. But with so many enemies lying in wait on every hand, David cries out to God for his continued protection. Verse 1, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You've given the commandment to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. So David appeals to God for his continued help. How that God had then proclaimed his escape from the hands of his enemies. And he had done that again and again. 
And though David was old, this wasn't something that he had just learned yesterday. He goes on, verse 4, Deliver me, O God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. So David is considering himself in his older years. As he cries out then to God for help, we know that what is happening coincided roughly with the time that David was almost killed in battle. The story that is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 15. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishvah-Banab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David, you see, was almost killed in battle by Goliath's son. Wouldn't that have been a storyline for the enemies of God? He'd grown faint. He was an easy target. And his men told him, No more, David. We can't afford to lose you. You're the light of Israel. You're God's anointed. You you can't keep going into battle. These things were on his mind as he wrote Psalm 71. What will I do now? Now that my days of a as being the warrior king are over, what what now? What will I do now? He doesn't leave us to wonder. Verse 8, let my mouth be filled with your praise. Verse 14, I will yet praise you more and more. Verse 15, my mouth shall sow forth your righteousness. Uh, Verse 16, I will make mention of your righteousness. Verse 17, I have declared your wondrous works. Verse 22, I will sing. Verse 23, my lips shall rejoice. Verse 24, my tongue will speak of your righteousness. These might not have worked as well as they once did. His feet might not have carried him as right past as they once did. But this, his mouth, this is mine. And that legendary heart after God's own heart was still as good as it ever was. Maybe better than it had ever been before. A lifetime of learning, a lifetime of serving God, a lifetime of worship had taught him well. And so he says, I'm going to spend my latter years. Extolling the power and the glory of God. I'm going to declare it again and again and again. Especially to that next generation. Now a quick look at David's family will show that his situation as far as his family is concerned was far from perfect. Uh, The Bible mentions 19 sons that he had by name. In 1 Chronicles 3, and one daughter, whose name was Tamar, born to him from nine different wives. 
his family situation was not ideal. His earliest children were born to him while he was in Hebron. Still very much in a, a, a terrible battle with the forces of Saul. Though Saul and Jonathan were dead, there, there was a rival king and they fought. And it was a long and, and bitter battle so that the forces of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And the forces of David grew stronger and stronger. That was his days in Hebron. Days of battle, days of war, days of victory to be sure. The Bible mentions six children that were born to him in Hebron. His firstborn son was Ammon. Ammon. Ammon became infatuated with his sister Tamar, ultimately raped her, and was killed by his half-brother Absalom. We've already mentioned as the one who led the rebellion against David. He was successful for a while, but David was forced to leave Jerusalem. Absalom would die in the battle. That's his first son and his third son as Absalom would die when they put David back on the throne Joab by the way would kill him his fourth son Adonijah would make a bid for the throne after David's death and he would end up being executed by Solomon he had four children then later in life one of those of course was Solomon also called Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, the heir to the throne. You see, David, like many people today, but unlike a lot of us, he had young children even up into his later years. What he had not done, apparently, when he was at Hebron, he was determined to do now. I'm going to spend my life, my latter years, teaching children the power and the glory of God. So while those early years were filled with battle, his later years were devoted to the task of teaching and showing this next generation how to serve and honor the Lord. They'd hear him teach. They'd hear him sing. They'd hear him pray. They'd hear him worship. And the Bible makes it so clear to us in the words of our text. David began to devote himself to training up those who would lead the nation after he was gone. Solomon was the most prominent. We remember Solomon as a young man. And how that he would have an encounter with God. Who offered him anything. And Solomon prayed for wisdom. Solomon would build the temple of God in Jerusalem. He would write three books of the Bible. He would lead the nation into a time of legendary prosperity and blessing. David was greatly used of God. Solomon would be even more so. It's the story of the first king then, King David. Lord, now that I'm old and gray-headed, forget me not. Do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation. God, help me. Use me. Don't forget me. Keep using me to reach this next generation. That's David. Then we'll look at the story of a second king. Again, not a stranger to us. His name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah grew up in the home of an evil king named Ahaz. 
Yet Hezekiah, when he ascended the throne of Israel, would lead a revival that would remove the idols and tear down the high places of worship throughout the land. He would face the mighty armies of Sennacherib who conquered the northern kingdom. He went to the temple when the army was looming against them and the threats and the taunts were coming against the people of God. Hezekiah went to the temple and prayed. How's that for a battle plan? (laughs) Well, it worked because God sent the prophet Isaiah to tell him that Sennacherim would never enter into Jerusalem. He wouldn't even shoot an arrow there. And in fact, the angel of the Lord entered the camp of the Assyrians and wiped out 185,000 men in one night so that the old King James Version very famously said, uh, and they woke up. And they were all dead corpses. Thus giving rise to that famous phrase, they went to sleep and woke up dead. 185,000. Sennacherib himself, God had promised he won't die here, he'll die in his own land. And he did. Killed by his own men. After all that played out then, Hezekiah got sick. Isaiah sent a messenger, was sent as God's messenger rather, to tell him that he would die and not live. But again, Hezekiah prayed. And before Isaiah had even got out of the king's courtyard, God told him to turn around and tell him, you've got 15 more years. And God healed him. Hezekiah, another great king devoted to God, another great king who led in victory, another great king who led in revival and in his old age then was given another 15 years. I don't know if there are many of us today that wouldn't be happy, at least though if you're my age or older, if God said, I'll give you another 15 years, I'd take that. I'd take that guarantee. Uh, yeah. Long about my age, it, uh, it's not... Uh, Well, it's not really a guarantee for us anymore. It's not taken for granted. So what would Hezekiah do with himself during that time? Fifteen years. Well, the king of Babylon heard that Hezekiah had been sick and got healed. And so he sent some emissaries down to him with a gift to celebrate. And Hezekiah just was so astounded that the king of Babylon would come and check on him that he just showed them all through the palace and showed them all the goodies, all the wealth that they had, everything that they had. He didn't hold back anything. And here comes Isaiah. Verse 5 of Isaiah 39, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's an ominous promise. Babylon, Hezekiah, is coming for your kids. Babylon wants everything you've got. Babylon is out to take your sons and make them serve the king as eunuchs. Babylon is after your kids. How did Hezekiah respond? You remember David's response. Isaiah 39 and 8, so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he said, 
at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Hezekiah. God had promised him 15 years. And I'm glad to know I'll get to live out my days in peace and truth, though Babylon is going to take my kids and destroy my land. The story then of these two kings this morning shows a remarkable difference in their focus as they reach the end of their lives and their appointed days. David said in a prayer that I pray over and over again, Lord, now that I'm old and gray-headed, don't forget me. Use me to reach this generation. Use me to teach them, to declare your power. Isaiah tells us that Hezekiah said, Well, I'm going to live out my days in peace and truth. Well... That's not all he did, though. Hezekiah raised up a son. A son was born during that last 15 years of his life named Manasseh. Turned out to be one of the most wicked kings that ever sat on the throne of Israel. Where Hezekiah had torn down the idols and the high places all over Israel, Manasseh built them back. Hezekiah had led them in a great revival to the worship of God, and yet Manasseh would lead the nation of Israel into such depraved worship that the Bible actually says that he led Israel to be worse than the Canaanite nations that God had destroyed before them. What a horrible indictment of Manasseh. David, with his focus on reaching the next generation, would raise one of the greatest kings in Israel whose exploits were legendary, although he wasn't without his failures as well. Hezekiah raised one of the greatest despots who ever sat on the throne of any nation and ushered the land into terrible judgment. One of these kings, David, was determined to use his latter years to raise up another generation to know God and his truth. One of them contented himself with enjoying peace and truth for as long as he lived. I bring these two perspectives to you this morning because we face the same choice in many ways today that they did. We face it individually in our own lives. We face it collectively as a church body. Individually, we can content ourselves to live out our days enjoying God's peace and God's blessings and God's truth. We enjoy studying the Bible today as much as we ever did. Uh, we enjoy worship as much as we ever did. We enjoy the peace and blessings of God. We appreciate them more and more. And we can content ourselves with that. Or we can be like David and devote ourselves to making sure we do everything we can to pass on our faith to the next generation. This isn't the only time that this concept is presented in Scripture. There's a very prominent example in Judges chapter 2 and verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. This is talking about those people who were brought out of Egypt. Many of them died or all of the, almost all of them died in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. 
They, though, raised up another generation. It was born while they were traveling. They were the ones that then came into the land of Canaan and began to conquer it. It went from victory to victory. So all of those people, here's, here's Joshua uh, and then all those who came with him, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, that generation. Verse 10 tells us, and also that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Those passages don't require a lot of commentary on my part. Uh, we have a group of people who uh, were the first generation into the promised land. They were raising the second generation in the promised land. And as long as those people were alive, they served, the God, served God. But then that third generation did not devote themselves to God in a way that their children could notice. And so that fourth generation didn't know God at all. Great-grandma and great-grandpa, you see, knew God. Grandma and grandpa, they, they knew God. Mom and daddy knew God, but they didn't serve him much. And the children then grew up that didn't know God at all. It happens, folk, just that quickly. And it is happening all over America right now. current generations we're looking at are the millennials and generation z as it is most commonly referred to gen z are those born between 1995 and 2010 i had to do a double take on that i remember 1995 <laughs> just seemed like not long ago um we're approaching the time when Gen Z reaches the halfway point. That is where half of their members will be over the age of 18. That is, they'll be considered legal adults. Which will mean that at that time, listen now, a full 50% of the adult population of this country will be made of millennials and Gen Z. By the time all of Gen Z reaches 18, which is only six years from now, uh, they're going to be closer to 60% of the population of the United States. We're only going to consider evangelical Christianity. Those who believe the gospel is the only plan of salvation, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Those who embrace the Bible as the inspired word of God and that it is authoritative. Those who desire to live their lives and raise their children according to the truth of Scripture. Evangelicals currently are 29% of millennials and less than 20% of Gen Z over the age of 18. Less than 20%. George Barna said this, The faith gap between millennials and their predecessors is the widest intergenerational difference identified at any time in the last seven decades. And Gen Z is going to only increase the gap. What was he saying? 
he was talking about how that this is the largest generation that they can tell going back seven decades. And that doesn't mean that they've gone back further than that and it was, it was, it was worse then. No, it just means that nobody was tracking anything back then. Had no way to do it. The last seven decades. And this is the time when more young people who were raised to Christian evangelical parents, Bible-believing parents, raised up in Bible-believing homes, have abandoned the faith of their parents, completely turned away from it. And he adds this, most Gen Zers have never been exposed to an evangelical Christian worldview. James White said this in his book, Meet Generation Z. He said it's simply a cultural reality that people in a post-Christian world are genuinely incredulous that anyone would think like a Christian, or at least what it means in their mind to think like a Christian. Almost all of Gen Z has been brought up hearing the worldview of scientism espoused. This worldview teaches that all can be known within nature is that which can be empirically verified. If something can't be examined in a scientific manner, it is unknowable and meaningless. Gen Z. Folks, this is where we are in America. And even in Cabot America, our percentages might be a little better. But when you start talking to young people and listen to what they're saying about their friends and their peers, I wonder about what's going on in Cabot America too. I do know this. There's never been a time when young people can access so many different ideas and belief systems in such a short period of time. They carry it around their hands all the time. They value relationships in a time when they experience incredible social isolation. They live their lives constantly connected to the digital universe. Uh, they can't hardly turn, uh, stand to look away from it. Some of you make it through a church service, but just barely. I can tell you, you're kind of having withdrawals already. <laughs> you know, by contrast, folks my age tend to think of technology as an intrusion, and we don't like it much. I, I, I'm perfectly fine uh, putting my phone down in a drawer by my bed and not looking at it all day. Can you? And some of y'all know that because you try to call me, but. Just some days, it's just not a phone day. Let me tell you something else about Gen Zers and millennials. They are leaving evangelical Christianity in droves. In droves. We can either take David's approach or Hezekiah's approach, one or the other. We can make it our purpose to pass along our faith to the next generation or we can take Hezekiah's approach and dedicate ourselves to enjoying peace and truth for as long as we live. Many religious leaders have moved so far in trying to equip their churches to reach another generation that they've excluded the older generation. But how can the next generation hear from their old gray-headed forebears if they're never given a chance to interact? Much of what young people find, and listen to me, young people, if you've checked out, check back in. Most of what you find, much of what you find in the digital world is misinformation created by your peers. 
It is based often on a false science, so-called, that is based on nothing more than popular opinion. It is the kind of science that decides what is popular and then goes looking for ways to substantiate it. And that is not science at all. It never has been, still not. What you need to hear is the voices of those who've been there. They've raised their children. They've taught them. They've lived their lives. They can share with you what is tried and true. If you want to look at it in a more pragmatic way, what works and what doesn't. We need to be together. It takes a willingness on both sides. Today is David's way or Hezekiah's way. David's way is difficult. David's way is challenging. (laughs) Passing the truth on to another generation is fraught with the possibility of failure. It's hard. I grew up in an era when a man by the name of Billy Graham could go into just about any town in this country and fill up football stadiums with massive numbers of people who would hear the gospel and thousands would be saved. I grew up in that world. That world is no longer. It's not here anymore. And so what we're doing today is going to be something that's going to happen by relationships. As we build relationships, as we share the truth with people who then can share the truth with others. For you young parents still raising your children, you are on the front lines of this. Are you praying with your kids? Do they hear your voice? That's what David said. Lord, let me declare your truth to the next generation. Are you declaring it? Are you praying with them? Are you reading Bible stories and scripture to your kids? Are you making sure they're involved with worship experiences with others of their own age? And even, yes, the older folks, are you like David determined? To make sure your next generation hears your voice speaking and singing your praise and devotion to God. This generation faces one of the most concentrated efforts in human history to turn them away from their faith. And it's working. We must raise our voice. Because Babylon is coming. And they're coming for our kids. Tonight, I'm going to conclude this message in many ways. I didn't have time to preach it all. Uh, And so, we're going to go to Psalm 102 and verse 18. This is a rare thing for me if you're visiting here today. This is not the kind of message I preach every week. And uh, I don't often announce what I'm going to preach on Sunday night and tell you that you need to come back and hear the rest of this. But you do need to come back and hear the rest of this. I hope you will. Because tonight's message will be titled, A People Yet to Be Created. And it's based on Psalm 102 and verse 18. This will be written for the generation to come. That a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner. To release those appointed to death. To declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. I, I, I can't preach that. I just, I'll leave that to tonight. But I'll tell you, we got some good news to hear. I'll tell you just this much. We can be involved in a work right now 
that will bless generations to come. I'm talking about your children's 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 children. We're going to talk about that tonight. All that means to us. But for now, I want to announce to you also that we'll have a business meeting tonight after services to consider the reports from the personnel and stewardship committees regarding the creation of a new pastoral position of outreach and young adults. That's right, to this generation. To this generation. We've prayed about it. I've prayed about it. Our personnel committee has prayed about it. Our stewardship committee has prayed about it. They're going to present some things to you tonight. I hope you'll be here. But even more, I hope you'll think about these two approaches we've considered today. We can spend our lives, our older years, Enjoying God's blessings and God's truth. It's safe. Nothing really is probably going to change our opinions very much. We will enjoy God's blessings. God will keep blessing us. We will experience His peace. We will learn more about His truth. We can do that and do it safely. We can enter into our holy huddles and enjoy our time and that the Lord calls us home. Or we can devote ourselves to a risky work fraught with danger and opposition with a very real possibility of failure again and again and again and yet claiming God's promise that His word will not return to Him void. It will accomplish so that fruit then will be born. Though it may not be all that we'd like to see. But it will happen. Folk, this is our time. This is our moment. In our community. For the future of the kingdom of Christ. It's David. Or it's Hezekiah. Let's stand together please.